Take your Bibles out and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you would please. I brought a message over the Memorial Day weekend related to the country. So I made the decision this July 4th weekend that we were going to stay in our study in 1 Peter. Since we've been out of 1 Peter for so long and we just returned to it again last week, I thought this morning I would stay the course uh, rather than giving a traditional July 4th type message. Uh, this morning we're looking at the topic, living in light of the late hour that it is. Living in light of the late hour that it is. Would you stand for the reading of God's word please? We'll begin in verse uh, 7 and we'll read down through verse 11. Again, the topic this morning is living in light of the late hour that it is. Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the hour is late. We can't help but sense that as we see the headlines. And Lord, as we read in your word that we're in the last days, help us as a church, help us as believers to be strong, to be men and women of conviction. Men and women who live out our faith in the marketplace. God, you've left us here to have an influence, to make a difference, and to be ambassadors for Christ, winning people to the Lord, and sowing the seed of the gospel. Help us to be faithful for whatever time we have left. Help us to be faithful that we would hear those words one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us strength, and help us to do all things to your glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think with me this morning for a moment about famous endings, famous endings. In September of 1978, Janet Parker, an English medical photographer, was exposed to smallpox as a result of a laboratory accident. She subsequently died. On May 8, 1980, the World Health Organization declared smallpox eradicated. Some samples remain in laboratories in both Atlanta and Moscow. 
When scientists destroy the samples, the smallpox virus will become the first life form intentionally eliminated from the face of the earth. Now on a different note, continuing to think about last things or famous endings, the last episode of the greatest TV series of all times, The Andy Griffith Show, was televised on September the 16th, 1968. The last song that Elvis Presley sang publicly was Bridge Over Troubled Water at his final concert in Indianapolis in June of 1977. The last original Peanuts comic strip was published February the 13th of the year 2000. Coincidentally, the creator Charles Schultz had died just the night before. The last Oldsmobile rolled off of a Lansing assembly line the week of April 27, 2004, ending production of an automobile line that had begun in 1897. And finally, the 1912 Olympics was the last Olympics that gave out gold medals that were made entirely of gold. Famous endings. On a different note, ladies and gentlemen, we are at the end. We are living in the last days. Peter says here, the end of all things is at hand. You see, from the days of Pentecost right up until this present day, we live in an age called the last days or the end time. Now let me give you some verses related to this. First of all, you may want to jot down Acts 2.17. In Acts 2.17 we read, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all of mankind. Now you'll recall what Peter was doing in that passage. Simon Peter was preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost because that's when the Holy Spirit had fallen uh, on the people and they spoke in other tongues, other languages and all of those who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Pentecost heard the gospel being preached in their own language. And they didn't know what to make of it. And so Simon Peter stood and he preached the gospel and he said, This is what the prophet spoke of that God would do in the last days. And so hence Peter was saying, we're in the last days. Because we're seeing what God said he would do in the last days and you're witnessing it, which must mean that we're in the last days. And then in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, the writer says, God has spoken to us in the past in many different ways, through the prophets and through visions and dreams. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. It puzzles some people how God could have said 2,000 years ago that we're in the last days. But there's an easy explanation. 
The final and climatic way that God was going to speak to man was through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled everything that the Old Testament had been pointing to. We are not to look for some other prophet or some other Messiah because there's none greater than Jesus. Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. And so when God sent His Son Jesus, He spoke to us in the final and complete and greatest way. And so with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the last days have begun. And that means that the last days are a period of time now having lasted more than 2,000 years. Folks, when we talk about last days, we don't need to think of it in terms that you and I do. We think of a matter of hours or a matter of days. But in the Bible, the last days speaks of an epoch of time, a period of time. The next event on God's clock will be the tribulation events on earth followed by the second coming of Christ when he comes for his bride, the church, and also to judge the living and the dead. And that means that you and I right now need to live in light of the fact that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. We need to get it out of our minds that it's way out there in the distance somewhere. Eternity may only be just a heartbeat away. It could happen this afternoon. I don't think it would, but it could. At any rate, we need to live with the thought in mind that the consummation of all things could be almost at any time. The things we're seeing in society take place now are what the Bible says will take place at the end. And so the hour must be very late. And so how are you and I to live? How are we to live in light of the lateness of the hour? That's what Peter is addressing in these verses. He tells us how we are to live as the body of Christ in light of the lateness of the hour. Now folks, you could call this a passage that focuses on eschatology. But let me say that when you think about eschatology and when you and I study eschatology, that is a subject that is never presented in the Bible simply to satisfy man's curiosity. Some people want to get out all of their maps and all of their charts and they want the flow chart of of everything that's going to happen here and there and they're so curious about all of that. But God did not tell us about last things simply to satisfy our curiosity. He told us these things to spur us on to godly living. Neither did he tell us about end time things so that we would withdraw from the world. We are to stay engaged with the world. We are to be salt and light. Somebody once asked the great reformer Martin Luther what he would do that day if he knew that that afternoon Jesus Christ was going to return. He said, I would pay my taxes and I would plant a tree. In other words, I would just keep doing my daily task. Nothing would change. 
And so again, Peter is telling us how we are to live as the body of Christ in light of the lateness of the hour. He gives us three admonitions here that I want us to look at. First of all, he talks to us about proper thinking. Look at verse 7 again. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. And in the Greek, that phrase is moved to the front end of the verse. Now in Greek grammar, the effect of that is that you're emphasizing it. He's emphasizing that the end of all things is really at hand. And he wants us to understand that. And because of that, he says here that we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Many scholars don't think he's talking about two separate things there, that he's using a literary device instead, a device known as hendiadus, when you're using two phrases that, he simply, that, that, that simply communicate the same thought connected by a conjunction. And that's what he's doing here. We need to be self-controlled and sober-minded, saying essentially the same thing. Now, folks, I want you to notice what he's advising us to do. He's advising us to think properly. When he uses the word sober, he's not saying that you don't need to be drunk. Now, that would be good advice too. But what he's talking about is sober thinking, proper thinking. We need to think right. We need to think biblically. We need to think wisely and with discernment about the days that we live in. In other words, if Jesus Christ could come at any moment, you and I need to get right between the ears. Obviously, we need to be right in our heart. We need to be born again. But we also need to be thinking biblically in our minds. We need to be thinking seriously. There are a lot of people today thinking seriously, but they are seriously thinking about the wrong things. As somebody said, you can go to the zoo and you can find a monkey with a serious look on his face, but it's probably only because he's got an itch somewhere. We need to think seriously, sober-mindedly about the times that we are in. You know, some people are looking to science to provide the answers for the time in which we live. And thank God for science. Thank God for advancements. I'm especially grateful for medical advancements and how science has helped medicine along. I was sitting in the home of Dave and Priscilla Desmond this past Thursday because he was going in for surgery Friday and having double knee replacement. We've had a lot of people in the church have knee replacement. Only one other person I can think of that's that's had double knee replacement, Ed Grimes. I remember when Ed Grimes had double knee replacement about five or six years ago. I was in the room with him as they were getting ready to take him to surgery and the anesthesiologist walked in and drew two more vials of blood. And Ed said, you've already taken my blood, what's that for? And the anesthesiologist said, we've got a whole new approach now, a new medical advancement. We take this blood 
we spin it down, we add a special solution to it, we put it all in a sterile bottle, and before we close your skin up over the new knee parts and joint parts, we spray it all down good with your blood in that special solution. And since we've been doing that, we don't have infections after surgery and we're not having the body reject those parts. When he sat there and said all that, I thought, man, you go. I hope you doctors keep going and developing all that so that when I'm old and need a knee replacement, you can walk in and say, Mr. Davis, here's a tablet you can take. Just swallow this tablet and this is your knee replacement. <laughs> Advancements are great. Advancements are wonderful. But they're not our hope. Because the death rate is still 100%. We need to think soberly about things. The problem with some science is that our head and our hands have outrun our hearts and our common sense. Somebody has described civilization as a crazy man with a blowtorch in a room full of dynamite. It seems like every day we're seeing things like that play out in the news. People have lost their minds at times, I think. When I read some of the stuff going on in the world, it's just crazy. Well, folks, we need to think biblically. We need to think soberly, sober-mindedly, and with self-control about the times that we live in. We need to think properly about trials. Peter reminds them back in verses 1 and 2 about the trials that they've had to go through and how God's got a purpose in all that. He said back there in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but instead for the will of God. The folks whom Peter was writing to were suffering for their faith in Christ. And he reminds them that Jesus too suffered in the flesh. And since the servant is not greater than the master, if we're followers of Jesus Christ and he suffered, we're going to suffer too. He tells them if they're willing to suffer in the flesh for their stand for Christ, then they have ceased from sin. Now, I explained that passage last week. He's not talking about sinless perfection. But what he's saying is that if you're willingly suffering for your faith, then the allure of sin in this world does not hold the same affection for you anymore. You see, as long as you live for the world and you chase the things of the world, you succumb to the temptations of the world. But if you've gotten to that point in your life that Jesus means more to you than anything else, even life itself, and you're even willing to suffer for Jesus, then the world doesn't have that same pull on your heart anymore. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Live or die, I want to glorify Christ. You can't defeat a man like that. And sin doesn't have the same pull on a man who's, who's gotten to that level. 
And so Peter is saying to them, they need to look at their trials differently. They need to see what God might be wanting to do in their lives through their trials. You see, God doesn't work in our lives in some vacuum, some protective bubble. He works in our lives through our circumstances, and many of our circumstances are trials. We need to think biblically about trials. We need to think properly about trials. That's one area where this proper thinking comes into play. Rather than grumbling and complaining, we need to submit ourselves to God when we're in the midst of trials because it's that very trial that you may be going through right now that God is going to use in your life to do something pretty awesome. That's why James said the same thing in James chapter 1 verse 2. He said, count it all joy whenever you fall into various trials, knowing that God takes trials to build patience and endurance and character and hope. Now nobody looks for trials. As I told you a couple of months ago, I I can guarantee you one thing. Nobody in here... This morning when you got up and opened your Bible and and you were in your devotions and prayer time before church, I can guarantee you I know one thing about every single person in here. I know that nobody this morning said, God, send me trials and trouble and suffering in my life. Now if you did ask for that, raise your hand because we need to get you some psychological counseling probably. We don't ask for it, but it's going to happen. And the scripture is telling us we need to even be joyful for those times of testing because of what God can do in that situation. He might do something in that situation in your life that he would do in no, no, other, no other way. He's using that. Not only do we need to think properly about our trials, but we need to think properly about the times. The times. Look back at 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. What do these verses there say about the last times? That the last times are going to be dangerous days, perilous days. Why? Because men are going to be lovers of money and lovers of themselves. Keep in mind, Paul's writing these words 2,000 years ago, but it's like he's writing a commentary on 2017. 
He goes on to say that men will love pleasure rather than God. We live in an entertainment culture. Look at all the money that we pour into entertainment today. We're entertaining ourselves into the poorhouse. Men will do things for the sake of entertainment, money-wise, time-wise, energy-wise, that they would never sadly do for the things of God. We're upside down. He says that men are without self-control. They're conceited, treacherous, and irreconcilable. Think of that last one, irreconcilable. We live in a world where people get mad at things and mad at people, and you can't get them to forgive. You can't get them to reconcile. It always disturbs me when I see that among professing Christians because the Bible says that as far as possible, now I realize it's not always possible, but as far as possible, as far as it depends on, on you you're to be at peace with all men Christians are to be agents of reconciliation and if we've got something against a brother we go to that brother we try to get things right that's what Christians do but Paul is saying in the end times people will be irreconcilable We need to think properly about the times that we live in. These are dangerous times. We need to think properly about the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says God's Word is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God uses the instrument of His Word to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ because it's through the Word of God that we learn that we are sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God and it's in the Word of God that we learn that God has given us a Savior, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's writing to Timothy and saying you need to cherish the Word of God because in the Word of God was your salvation but not only in your, not only your salvation uh, in Christ Christ was learned through the Word of God, but also your sanctification. God uses His Word to grow you in the faith. So in times like we live in, we need to think properly about the Word. It's an anchor and a compass for these times that we live in. These turbulent times. That's why I've been encouraging you lately to study your Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter. Because God's going to bless you through that. He's going to teach you. He's going to grow us as we're grounded in His Word. And if you're a lost person studying the Bible, you know what? God's going to do what only God can do. God's Holy Spirit is going to use His Word to draw you to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 says. We also need to think properly about Jesus coming. 
Listen to what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, Jesus said, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. What's Jesus saying? Be ready. Because one of these days, we talk about Christ coming back, but folks, one of these days, He's going to come back. He promised. And it's going to be in the moment. In a moment, it's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. And when He comes for His church, if you're not ready, you're going to miss eternity with the Lord. And it's going to be too late. There are no second chances. Please hear me. There are no second chances. Get ready. If you're ready, it doesn't matter if he comes this afternoon or a hundred years from now, you're ready. It's immaterial when he comes if you're ready to meet him. We need to be properly thinking about the end of times and his coming. Now notice what Peter goes on, back to verse 7 a minute, when he's talking about thinking soberly and, and, and being self-controlled and, and, and being alert to things. He, he tells us why. He goes on at the end of that verse to tell us why that we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. He says, for the sake of your prayers. You see what he's saying there, folks? If we are not thinking properly, if we are not thinking biblically, then we are going to be praying incorrectly. We're not going to be praying biblically if we're not thinking biblically. James gives an illustration of that in James chapter 4. He says the first problem is you don't have because you don't ask. But secondly, when you do get around to asking, you ask for selfish things that you can consume it upon your lust. He says no wonder you don't see answered prayer in your life because you're not praying biblically. We'll pray biblically when we think biblically. When we get in God's Word and learn who God is and how He's all, always worked in the life of His saints. And when we know His Word, it's going to help us in our praying. We're not going to be asking for things that we know are displeasing to God. So He says, think properly so ultimately you can pray properly. 
Secondly, he tells us fervent loving, that we're to be engaged in fervent loving. Look at verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Remember what I said a moment ago from 2 Timothy 3? The last days are going to be characterized by no love unless it's a love for yourself or a love for money. But in that kind of context, he says in the body of Christ, we're to love one another. Here's the world out there. The world is loving self, loving money, loving pleasure. But in the body of Christ, we're to be loving one another. Loving God and loving one another. And he says we're to love fervently. The ESV uses the word there earnestly. The Greek word had the idea behind it. It, was a, it could be used in, in the sports arena or in racing of stretching and straining towards a goal. Runners could be running a race and there would be the tape and you get to the end and there's runners and you're all bunched together and you see runners how they strain ahead so that they'll be the first one to break the tape. It was sometimes used in horse races. You'd get a horse galloping and you'd get him up to full speed. He says that's how we're to love. Wide open, full speed, straining. Nothing half-hearted about our love for one another. You know, it's easy to love most of the saints most of the time, isn't it? It's a whole lot harder to love all of the saints all of the time. Somebody once said, to dwell above with saints in heaven, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. (laughs) And yet we're to love the saints with whom we live and work. We're not to be defined by this culture. We're to love differently than the world loves. Jesus described the last days as times where lawlessness and evil abound and the love of many grows cold. Jesus was saying that in the last days there'd be a tidal wave of lawlessness. There'll be a crescendo of immorality and vice. And because of that, the love of many will wax cold. Are we not seeing that now? Everybody's suspicious of everybody. We're afraid at times to even go to the door and see who's there. You answer the phone and you're suspicious about the motives of the person on the other end of the line. Criminals today are using all kinds of technology and all kinds of creativity to steal others blind. If they would use that creativity and that knowledge in something positive, they'd be the next Bill Gates. That's the kind of times we're living in. And because we live in days like this, we get cold, we get calloused. Peter says here to Christians, don't allow these days to ruin you. Don't allow these days to cause your love to grow cold. You need a fervent love. Love is the greatest virtue. You've probably been to a wedding this summer. A lot of weddings in June. And if you, I dare say, if you went to a wedding this past June or maybe in May, you probably heard the preacher read from 1 Corinthians 
13, the love chapter. You get to the end of the love chapter, verse 13 of chapter 13, and Paul says, And now abideth faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love, the greatest virtue. He says, Love covers a multitude of sins. He does not mean that if we show love, we'll actually atone for sins. That's one interpretation of this verse that needs to be rejected. Rather, he's simply saying love is gracious. It doesn't try to put the other person's shortcomings in the spotlight. Have you ever met anybody that it's like they're always trying to point out everybody else's faults? I guess they think that makes them look better if they're pointing out everybody else's shortcomings. But he says here that true love doesn't do that. It covers, it tries to protect. True love is not interested in tearing down, but building up. Love is the greatest commandment. Jesus in John 13 was preparing his disciples for his departure. He was getting them ready for what life was going to be like in the world. And Jesus said to them, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. He went on in that same passage to talk about love's the greatest testimony. He said, All men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's what's going to be the testimony to a lost world how we love one another and love one another fervently they're going to say you know something there's, there's something different about those Christians love's the greatest motivation 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about why he's living his life as an ambassador for Christ and why they need to as well he says the love of Christ constrains us. In other words, it's the love of Christ that motivates me to go on being a missionary and a church planner, regardless of all the suffering that he was going through. Why would a man go through what Paul did? He said, the love of Christ is what motivates me. Love is the greatest confirmation. And what I mean by that is what John says in 1 John. That if you don't love, it's because you abide in death. But if you love the brethren, that is a great sign that you have passed from death to life. John gives us assurances of our faith in 1 John. And love is one of them. The first one is the truth test. What do we we believe about the person and work of Christ? Do we believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Then the obedience test. Do you desire to obey God now? Do you desire to follow Him? Is is that just the love that wells up from within you? Well, that's a sign of the new birth. And then this other sign of the new birth is do you love the brethren? There might have been a day you didn't particularly like Christians, but now you you love to be around your Christian brothers and sisters. That's a great sign that God has done His work of grace in your heart. And so love is a confirmation.
And then in verse 9, Peter shows us a very practical example of love in action. In verse 9 he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is an example of how we can show love, how we can fervent love. Hospitality was very important in the New Testament. Because you see, as Christians traveled in the New Testament world, they didn't have many hotels back then, but the hotels they had, you didn't want to stay in. They weren't nice places. Immorality and vice went on at places like that. And so Christians would open up their homes to one another. They would show hospitality. And then other believers opened up their homes on a constant, ongoing basis because a church met in their home. House churches. Ladies, think about the church body meeting in your house every week. You know, you could get to the point, I guess, of saying, I'm, ti- I'm tired of getting ready. I'm tired of getting things ready for all these people to come over. But he says, no. Show that hospitality without grumbling, without complaining. Fervently love one another. And then lastly, he admonishes us here towards faithful serving. Look at what he says beginning there in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we live in the last days and look for the coming of the Lord we ought to have our heads up in the clouds we're to be working we're to be serving and we're to be faithful of it faithful at it we're stewards a steward in Bible times was a household manager the book of Genesis talks about Joseph being a good example for us in stewardship Potiphar put Joseph over everything in his house. Then when he was falsely accused and ended up in prison, then the prison guard again saw that God's favor was on Joseph and put Joseph in charge of everything in the prison. And then when he got out of prison, uh, Pharaoh saw about Joseph and put him as steward over the whole entire land of Egypt. Joseph was a faithful steward. You and I are to be faithful stewards. You say, How? He mentions it right here. God's grace, grace gifts have come to us in a multifaceted type way, a varied way. Spiritual gifts. He's talking about spiritual gifts. Not all the gifts are the same. One has a gift of teaching. One has a gift of showing mercy. One has a gift of leadership. One has a gift of giving. One has a gift of being an exhorter. You have different gifts. And Peter says here, you're to faithfully serve by knowing what your gift is and using your gift for the body of Christ to build the body of Christ up. And Peter lists the gifts in two different categories here. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. And he lumps all the gifts into those two categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. 
And, 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 and what he says here, if speaking is your gift, you need to realize that you're speaking the very oracles of God. Sunday school teacher, I want you to think of that. When you stand before that class and you open up the Bible and teaching, uh, and you're teaching the Bible, what are you teaching? You're teaching the very word of the living God. Folks, we need to handle God's Word seriously and carefully. It's God's Word. We don't need to be careless and frivolous with it. Paul said there's a day coming when people won't put up with sound. They just want to have their ears tickled. We need to be teaching the whole counsel of God. It's God's Word. It's serious business what we're about. If serving is your gift, he says, do so in the strength that God supplies. What's the temptation if you're serving? Look at what I did. No, it's not what you did. It's what God is doing through you. And so you need to serve humbly depending on Him. Whatever your gift is, use it in His strength and power because you're being a steward of the grace of God. God's grace is displayed to us in salvation when we're saved. God's grace is also displayed to you by whatever spiritual gift He gave you to use in the church. And you need to be faithful at it. Faithful. While we are waiting on the end, we're to be hard at work. It reminds me of an occurrence back in the day when America was first going to the moon. A reporter asked one of the astronauts, when, when, when you're finished working on the moon, what are you going to do then? The astronaut said, we're, we're going to get in the lunar module, we're going to fire the rockets, and we're going to come back to, your, to Earth. The reporter said, well, what happens if the rockets don't fire? How long will you have left to live? The astronaut said, we'll have six hours, that's all. The reporter went on to say, then how are you going to spend those six hours? The astronaut said, working on the rockets. <laughs> Use your gift for the glory of God. And verse 11 gives us what the end goal ought to be. The end goal, he says... He says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the goal. The immediate goal, of course, the church is built up and edified. But the bigger goal is God's glorified, God's magnified. The name of Christ is honored. Paul says in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, think with me a moment about verse 7. The end is at hand. Time is short. What if? Hypothetical. But it might be reality. What if time is shorter than any of us realize? What if? Are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready? 
Have you been born again? Not joined a church or been baptized. You do that because you have been born again and you're giving testimony of it. Has God saved you by His grace? Radically changed you from the inside out. You're a new creation in Christ. If that hasn't happened to you, you're not ready. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Are you ready? The end is at hand. Perhaps this morning your prayer needs to be, Lord, I I know I don't think properly. I take my cues from the world and from what other people say and do. Lord, help me to take my cues from your word. May your word become my anchor and my compass. Maybe this morning your prayer needs to be, Lord, prayer is the last thing I tend to do. Help me to start praying and to pray wisely. If you want to pray, it is not wrong to say, Lord, teach me to pray. Somebody else asked that question. You remember who it was? The disciples, Lord, Teach me to pray. Maybe in light of living in the end times, that needs to be your prayer. Lord, teach me to pray. Maybe love's your problem today. You love those who love you back. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that takes absolutely no Christian faith whatsoever. He says, anybody in the world can do that. You pat me on the back, I'll pat you on the back. You love me, I love you. That's not faith. But do you love those who don't love you back? Do you love those who might even be your enemy? Now that's a sign of faith. Do you fervently love? Are you a steward of the grace gift that God's given to you? Do you even know what your spiritual gift is? If you know what it is, what are you doing right now to be working on it, to developing it? And how are you using it? Living in light of the late hour that it is. We may not have as much time as we think we have. We tend to think we've got all the time in the world. And we may not.